Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The information depicted in this podcast is purely for informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional before making any changes to your lifestyle or routine. Hey everyone and welcome to the Boost Your Biology podcast. My name is Lucas and I'm the founder of Ergogenic Health. Together in this podcast series, we will go underground to explore cutting-edge health and human performance insights that you simply cannot search on Google to help you upgrade your existence. So without any further ado, let's jump into today's episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Organifi. If you're into high-performance superfood powder blends to boost your smoothies, then you simply can't go past Organifi. Organifi uses the highest quality plant-based ingredients for optimal health with organic ingredients and less than three grams of sugar per serving. Not only that, but their products are also very delicious. Visit Organifi.com forward slash boost. That is O-R-G-A-N-I. FI.com forward slash boost for 20% off all products. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash boost. What's up fam? Lucas here. I want to take a moment to announce a couple of things to all my new listeners on the podcast. Firstly, if you're looking to upgrade your brain function, whether that be through reducing brain fog, enhancing verbal fluency, improving confidence, motivation, drive, or even orgasm intensity, then check out my nootropics course, which can be found on my website at www.ergogenic.health. And you'll see at the top, it will say courses where you can use the discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. In addition, I also have a sleep optimization masterclass and a testosterone optimization course that can also be accessed on my website. Again, you can use the same discount code BYB15 to save 15% off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's special guest is regarded as a thought leader, independent researcher, <laughs> a metabolic expert, hair <laughs> loss and anti-aging ex- expert as well. And has actually, you know, has an outstanding perspective on stress and its deleterious effects on the body. He authored the best-selling book, Hair Like a Fox, a bioenergetic <laughs> view of patent hair loss in 2013. And joining me on the show today is the one and only Danny Roddy. 
I will never, ever live up to, to that intro, but I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Lucas. Good to be here. Yeah, we've been, I mean, like, I was just chatting to Danny before the show. Like, we have a bit of a, a, lo- a long history. I mean, I actually first Danny's first saw Danny's content um, probably, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago as I stumbled across, you know, the, the Ray Pete forum and just fell in love with like a lot of the principles and then just, yeah. And then I saw your work, man. So I, I really appreciate that. I mean, a lot of it was motivated. Like I used to be in like a paleo sphere and I remember kind of coming uh, upon Ray's work and, and bouncing it off people like um, Dr. Kurt Harris was very popular at the time, Rob Wolf, uh, Chris Kresser, and them kind of all uniformly saying that he was not only a quack, but he was just completely wrong about everything. You know, they wouldn't even entertain his ideas. And there's something about Ray that is just like a, this powerful logical force, you know, and, and he's so attractive as this humble, dedicated, like scientist type. And so, I don't know, I found that extremely compelling after a long period of time. And then of course we can get into it, but of course, like my own relationship with stress, I was like, clearly that's been a problem my entire life, you know, and, and this guy is talking about it as the, as one of the um, main drivers of disease. And so that just, that was extremely compelling to me. So maybe for my listeners now, we're talking about this mysterious Ray Pete. So like, <laughs> we're going to let them know who is Dr. Ray, Ray Pete. Yeah. I don't even know if I'm the one to summarize that. Um, I don't know. He's eight, I think 85 this year, a uh, biologist, philosopher, uh, just really incredible person, you know? And, and I think, I think when you interact with his work, it will change you or make you see things that you didn't necessarily see before. And so I don't know. I, sometimes I joke, I say I'm like the apprentice that he never wanted, you know, uh, but like, I don't know. I, it, it makes me sound dogmatic or something, but like, and how can you have anything but tons of respect for somebody that's like changed your life in such a, such a positive way, you know? And so I'm just endlessly fascinated with him as an individual and then his work. I don't think people understand like how grand his uh, like scope of his work is. Like he has newsletters going back from, to the seventies, you know, and, and he's been incredibly consistent with writing new material. And like, I'm sure you're subscribed to his newsletter, but he'll be releasing these bi-monthly newsletters on topics that I really have never even seen explored in the health sphere. So he's like putting together new things at age 85, you know, like I'm struggling to keep up with my workload at 35 and he's 50 years older than me. And he's just, he's just really has it together. And so, so again, I, and I'm not alone, you know, I think people, I think people, the immediate knee jerk reaction is that he's crazy and his work is, it's nuts, you know, but I, I've seen it so many times that people say that and then they like trickle into the kind of bioenergetic perspective or whatever you want to call it. And they get consumed by it, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Just like now we're seeing more and more people take on board a lot of the, you know, approaches that Ray Pete has around health. Um, so Danny, maybe do you want to give my listeners a bit of a, a bit of a, you know, background about, you know, your story and how you got into all this? Yeah, I'll, I'll give you the condensed version. So I used to be in a band uh, and we had kind of a motto of like, fake it till you make it. And all the guys in the band were extremely dedicated. We used to flyer and add people on MySpace and things like that. And our goal was always to sign to a major label. And uh, I, I didn't really have the words to articulate it at the time. But like when we would go play shows, my arms would stiffen up and I played the bass and I like literally could not play my instrument. And so I just, I had a really terrible response to kind of like, um, above average stress. You know, I was terrible talking to girls too. So that was like another sign. I always be real shy and nervous. But I mean, even going before that, like in school, even if I knew the material, I'd go and like fail the test. And it, like my stress response was just so terrible to, to, to that kind of thing. So anyways, uh, so I think, I mean, I have a bunch of symptoms too, like low, low libido during this band time, hair loss, feeling bad, very negative, like always wanting to argue with people. And so, um, uh, let me try to tell this story correctly. So we, we uh, my, my problems really hit ahead on a, like a second European tour. So we self-fund a tour to go to Europe to start playing shows. And so I'm feeling worse at that time. And miraculously, our plan of faking it till you make it actually works. And an island Def Jam executive hears our song that was played on the radio by... Um, Bruce Dickinson, who is like in Iron Maiden. I don't know what his status is. Anyways, we, Island signs us and then the stress gets even 
worse, you know? And so, okay, so I identified this problem with stress and I'm trying to think of how to solve it. And I, and I start going from diet to diet to diet because uh, I had watched that movie, Super Size Me. I, don't, I forgot when it came out, like maybe 2003 or 2004 or something. But in that movie, the guy ate fast food for a long time and he just felt terrible and had a bunch of problems. So anyways, I go from uh, vegetarianism to veganism to veganism for like two years, then to low carb and maybe like 2006, 2007. And then when I hear about zero carb, the meat and water style diet that Sean Baker is a big proponent of now, I get on that in somewhere around 2007, 2008, and then do that for like two years, totally hit a wall. <laughs> like feel worse than I've ever felt in my entire life in like 2000, uh, probably between 2010, 2011, you know, and I, and I start including starches in my diet. Uh, and then I find Ray Pete probably beginning of 2012, like late 2011. And then that's the story of it. And just trying to figure out what he's saying and what his ideas are. And uh, it still learning every day uh, until now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's phenomenal just uh, to hear the back. I, I've never heard the full story, Danny. <laughs> that's not even the full story. <laughs> that's like a major league condensed version. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy just to think... Um, you know, I'm glad that you've sort of touched on the range of diets, you know, that you experimented with. I'd love to, I'd love to start there around the, the diet aspects because I know Dr. Ray Pete has some key principles in terms of, you know, dietary um, patterns and modalities, things like that. So, yeah, do you want to talk about more, you know, how that escalated? Oh, sure. So, yeah, so I was always looking for like a paradigm that kind of made, made sense. And I think the vegetarian vegetarianism is one of the easiest because it's like a very mainstream dominant point of view to get healthy, you know? So that was just the immediate thing that I did. And then I heard about veganism. Okay, it's even better than vegetarianism. And I, uh, so I'm like, like 165 right now. I'm like 5'11". I shrunk down to like 120 pounds on veganism. Like I was so, so small. And my family wanted to have like an intervention for me because I was so sickly and just, uh, you, you could have like punched me and I would have like broken a bone or something. I was, I was so ridiculously weak. And so anyways, um, so that whole modality is like, don't eat animals. And the health part is like this ad hoc addition after that like pseudo philosophical view of not eating animals. And so I didn't, I'm not saying I thought this at the time, but in retrospect, like that's not a very compelling hypothesis, you know? And, and then you get into things like low carb, which is getting more into the physiology. Oh, you don't want to raise insulin. You Sugar is the worst thing to burn, you know. Uh, you want to be a fat-burning beast, you know. And, and to me at the time, at least, that was a very compelling narrative. And then zero carb is even better. You're getting rid of all these toxic plants and things like that. You know, I'm using air quotes for the toxic. And uh, that's even better than the um, low carb. And, you know, a lot of people don't actually find success with low carb. And so, of course, zero carb must be better. And, you know, I can stick to literally any at least at the time, I could literally stick to any diet for years. It was just the idea of like finding the holy grail of diets and then and sticking to it. Mm. And, and then Paul Jaminy came out with like the perfect health diet and he was a big proponent of starches. And so after my zero carb failure, I started including starches. Anyways, I think through that whole process and then landing on the Ray stuff, it was like, okay, it's like, is diet really the most essential aspect to be modifying to improve health? And, and I started to just like, uh, grow more and more weary of that over time, you know, and especially since like we haven't really gotten into it, but like hypothyroidism, I think I was hypothyroid since I was a little kid. And like, I look back at photos of myself and I'm, I'm like just obviously hypothyroid. And, um, and so I think when you're faced with kind of this terrible environment that all of us and have, I don't know, you're in Australia. I know, I don't know. You might be living on some farm somewhere in a great situation, but I think most people are in kind of a dire situation of the, of the environment being at odds with their, their health. Mm. And that's not even to take into account the things that happened to them when they were born and the medications and things like that. They were that, like, I took a albuterol for asthma, like for like a decade when I was a, a, a younger kid. And so what I'm trying to say is I think a lot of health problems require more inventive thinking than eat meat or don't eat animals. You know, I, I just think those are like paltry and not, not adequate for addressing health problems. Mm. And so that's where Ray comes in. And that's why I appreciate him so much because I think his, the, the work he's put together is this expansive big toolbox. And then based on vital signs like your pulse and temperature and, and various lab work like high cholesterol or 
prolactin or vitamin D or et cetera, et cetera. A person could take that info and then try to um, actually get somewhere by taking that data uh, and hopefully, the, the, we haven't talked about yet, but like increasing the metabolic rate and yeah. hopefully hopefully feeling better a la Broda Barnes. It's phenomenal. I, I remember, you know, when I when I looked at Ray Pete's work early on and how he was really emphasizing optimal thyroid function and like I got so obsessed with thyroid, optimizing my <laughs> thyroid that I got like three blood tests in like one month just to assess my thyroid. And at the end, I'm like, Yes, I've like optimized my thyroid. <laughs> P3 was super high. My T4 was moderate. TSH was like 0.8 or whatever. Um, but let's let's talk about that. Let's talk about you know your experience with hypothyroidism. Yeah, yeah. So 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 the thing I kind of neglected and left out is through all of those dietary adventures that I went on, some were well, basically all of them, especially veganism, and then the second year of carnivore my body temperature just decreased so noticeably, you know? And so I've said this a bunch of times, but like I used to work at Apple retail and the store was, because it's a bunch of electronics, it's kept pretty cold. And the girls in the store would be working, wearing like a t-shirt and I'd be wearing like three sweatshirts, you know? I'd be so cold. And it wasn't just my hands and feet. It was like my genitals and my nose and my ears were cold. So it was like, I remember telling so, like somebody that a close friend that worked there, I was like, like, my genitals are cold. And he's like, what, what in the hell are you talking about? He was like, so weirded out that that was something I noticed about my body, you know? And so, um, so what I'm trying to say is that, but that low core temperature and what I would later find out also extremely low pulse rate, mm. those were like dry. In, in addition to other things like the hair loss and mood and libido and things, those were all always like my primary symptoms that I was always monitoring and digestion. I think all those things were related. And so I think when the the metabolism or your thyroid function or, or is suppressed, it, it kind of like sets a person into a state of pseudo hibernation, a la that, that serotonin video made about the carnivore stuff. And, and that just feels, that's like at odds with a joyous life. You know what I mean? To be in this pseudo hibernation state dominated by stress hormones that rise when your thyroid is low. And so anyways, what, so when I started listening to Ray and he was talking about the body temperature as this like very important thing, I was like, oh my God, maybe this guy gets it, you know, because I had talked to so many health people that never ever mentioned it or thought that low was better. Mm. And I just knew inherently like that I can confidently say that a low body temperature is not a good thing, an enjoyable thing. And all my symptoms were the absolute worst when I felt the coldest. That's, it's crazy. I mean, like, and it's often the symptom that's kind of neglected by a lot of people when they do like, you know, a range of blood tests, things like that. They forget, you know, that morning, that morning temperature, how crucial that is. And I think I heard you talk with um, Georgie about um, first thing in the morning, not drinking too much water or something. Water. Talk, talk more about that. <laughs> so that, co- that comes from personal experience. And so that sounds kind of nutty. So when I was like uh, zero carb, and my, so I think I was severely hypothyroid d- during this time. And I started to look really different. Like my, I, like I would just fill out. I was just puffy, you know, all over my body. And I, when I would get labs during that time, my prolactin level would be very high. So that's like a pituitary hormone that is sensitive to, um, you can probably explain this better than I can, but like the amount of sodium and calcium outside the cell and the magnesium and potassium are supposed to be inside the cell. And I think when sodium and calcium like too much enter the cell and the blood becomes more like hypotonic or la- lacking sodium that can turn on prolactin. And then yeah. prolactin is like an emergency hormone that can uh, interfere with androgen production, but it can also just suppress the thyroid function. Anyways, I think drinking too much water is kind of a trigger for this uh, prolactin hormone to be released. Mm. And so what I'm trying to say is when I was zero carb, I would have like one meal a day in the evening and I'd eat my meat and then I'd drink water and I'd feel even colder after mm. I drank the water than, be- than before, you know? And so, so again, doing this every day for two years, there was a pattern that was a, emerged, you know, the, the coldness of the body temperature and then maybe TMI. But the girl I was dating at the time, I knew from experience that if I just drank less water, her and I would be like, be able to be intimate. And if I didn't, if I drink too much water, I can't kind of have like ED. And so again, don't ask me how I figured these things out, but that, that was just like kind of obvious to me. So my hypothesis is just that um, I was so low thyroid. 
I probably had high prolactin. I mean, that's confirmed by lab tests I had at the time. It was like I hovered around 13 or 12. And then I think just drinking water wasn't doing me any favor. So a normal metabolic person, if those people exist these days, like they might be able to get away with water totally fine. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to say like my metabolic rate was so low and my prolactin was probably so high that I think in that situation, drinking water might be kind of a liability. Yeah. I, I heard, um, I also heard Georgie talk about um, insufficient amount of sodium will impair that cert enzyme. So you're going to get excess serotonin from not enough salt. Right? <laughs> I, you could probably explain that better than I could, but there is a reference I have saying like sodium restriction increases uh, serotonergic system in man. So maybe it's like the, car, the sodium stimulates the production of carbon dioxide uh -huh. and then carbon dioxide is helping the platelets and the mast cells retain their uh -huh. carbon dioxide. Yeah. But um, yeah, like I think Ray has a whole article, salt, salt, like energy and aging or something, just talking about how critical that is. Yeah. And then the thing we didn't really talk about, but like, um, I think thyroid is like regulating that balance of minerals inside and or, uh, ions inside and outside the cell. Mm. And so if a person is, has a low t temperature and pulse, they're probably just always, uh, they're probably always going to have problems balancing those minerals like the potassium, calcium, sodium, and magnesium. Yeah. Let's, let's take a broader perspective now. Like I know we've, we've spoken about thyroid function, um, and, and sort of how that seems to be a key regulator of all the other downstream hormones. So maybe do you want to talk about, yeah, maybe like discuss, you know, how thyroid is linked and is considered like a protective hormone. Yeah. So the way I understand it is it's like a cofactor. It's like a, a stimulates cellular respiration. So the production of taking carbs, fats and proteins and reducing them down to electrons and passing them through the cell and making water, uh, carbon dioxide, and ATP. But I think it's the other part is that it's stimulating a steroidogenesis and mm. the turnover of cholesterol, I think specifically LDL, into pregnenolone, progesterone, and DHEA. So this is like, uh, and so it has two of these like pivotal functions. And then, and then I think when either of those things get, get interfered with, that's when a person starts accumulating stress over a lifetime and that leading to kind of imperfect repair and, and kind of these diseases of civilization we're always talking about. Mm -hmm. And so, so again, the, I, uh, we, again, we haven't talked about it yet, but I think there's lots of different things in the environment that are impairing the thyroid function. So I think it's very probable that by, by the time a person's 20 or 30 or even older, they probably accumulated so much stress and they're, they're having so many signals sent to their body to turn down the rate of metabolism, kind of like, um, like if you, to go longer on less, like it's a, your body is sensing a bad situation. So let's lower the metabolic rate to get through the bad situation. And uh, they, they never get signals to turn back on their thyroid function. So they're conserving their tissue, but at a great expense. And so besides, go ahead. Yeah, we, I was going to say some of those environmental, we can touch on some of those environmental factors that may be hindering thyroid function. You want to explore some of those? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they're, they're probably extremely vast, you know, like even a person's uh, familial environment, uh, what their parents ate, their grandparents ate, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the one Ray is kind of famous for is the polyunsaturated fats, you know, and so those being the precursor to uh, prostaglandins, which are these like hormone like uh, um, hormone like modulators of uh, respiration and hormone production and things like that. And so this is controversial because Ray is saying these are like executors of inflammation. They're exclusively bad, but some, a lot of people think that some of them are, are good. So I realize how complicated all this is. Um, then there are a substrate for like lipid peroxidation, which again, you could speak more intelligently about than I could, but like har really harming the mitochondria. Like nobody thinks lipid peroxidation is good stuff, but um, these like double bonded fatty acids are very susceptible to what is it getting their hydrogens taken from like a free radical attack and, and causing uh, lots of it's stealing the oxygen in the process and basically causing like your cells to become hypoxic, you know? So, so PUFA and, and then the other thing Ray says, and I've yet to see these papers, but he says he's talks about these French papers that showed that the production activation, or I'm sorry, the production transport and activation of thyroid is inhibited in proportion to the double bond. And so I have some papers that say similar things, but they're a little over my head. Uh, but that's, that's the, I think that's the basic argument that we were talking about um, cellular respiration and the production of steroids and PUFA is kind of like the antithesis of that. Like it interferes 
with multiple uh, points of producing the protective steroids that oppose cortisol and estrogen and aldosterone, and also in interfering with the cellular respiration process, which is um, how we make energy and reinforce our structure and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So to put it simply for my audience, I'll, I'll try and break it down because <laughs> we, we could nerd out on <laughs> Like we could have fun. It's funny because you're like, oh, you probably know more than me, but I'm, I'm looking at you th- thinking, <laughs> you know more than me, man. <laughs> but with the, um, like with these, with these puffers that um, Ray P talks about, we're referring to like canola oil, sunflower oil, safflower oil. These are having a, a, having a negative effect on thyroid hormone function, right? Yeah. So there's a paper, it, it says from 1909, I think to 1999, soybean oil has increased a thousand percent. And so again, this is, this is became, becoming way less controversial these days with a, a lot of people adopting the seed oils are the biggest problem, you know? Um, but I think what Bray, Ray brings to the table is this kind of energy perspective and the pulse and temperature and the thyroid. I think a lot of people have concluded that the seeds are bad but it's because they're like ancestrally inconsistent or something. Mm. And so that's, that's kind of the most interesting part of the whole diet space to me is these different paradigms and how they interact with each other. And I'm just most convinced of the bioenergetic paradigm or Ray's uh, thesis, energy and structure are interdependent at every level. And I think another way of saying that is um, that one of Ray's influences is Albert Shane Georgie. And he said the cell needs energy for all of its functions day to day, but it also needs enough to, to maintain its structure and so the way I simply think about that is like the cell produces energy to reinforce its like cytoskeleton and then cells make tissues and tissues make organs and organs make us. So, so when you want to like approach a health problem, I think you gotta, you gotta, you really gotta start trying to understand what, what the cell is doing. And then if you don't understand that, you probably are going to go adrift into all these weirdo ideas. Yeah. Let's sort of, um, Danny, let's sort of transition and discuss a little bit on um, hair loss because I know, you were well known in the early days for like your <laughs> analyzing, you know, different causes. What are the main drivers? Estrogen, um, parathyroid hormone, prolactin, cortisol. Do you want to expand upon that? How, how's your view changed? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's funny because everything we've talked about is completely relevant to to the person experiencing hair loss, and so. There's a paper I have, I think it's in 1996, and they say uh, baldness is such a prevalent disease, uh, they call it, that maybe uh, normal people are in uh, early phases of experiencing baldness. So like the, the person with a perfect head of hair is in like an early phase of experiencing baldness because I think it's so prevalent, like if a man or a woman lives long enough, they're going to experience some degree of so-called male pattern baldness. And so uh, I don't know if you want to get into the whole thing. I, I guess I was always just suspicious of the, the idea that baldness was just like genes and, and DHT. Like a, a person, like the, the typical, I mean, even though there's no specific look to baldness, I, like when I'd walk down the street in San Francisco or something, like it doesn't stand out as some amazing health feature when combined with kind of the whole picture. Like the person might be overweight or something or... They, are, they look like they're in advanced stages of aging in general. And so I was like, why, why would you just invoke genetics and DHT for this one specific problem? And also, DHT is this masculinizing hormone. So men are supposed to be getting more like masculine as they age. Like this, none of this makes any sense, you know? And then also I neglected to say that I had, I had gone on finasteride and I experienced side effects pretty quickly. You know, like my ejaculate was like super watery. I think my disposition and mood was even worse than it normally was. And so I was like, cl- clearly that's not the, the way forward. And then, again, this is a super long story, but I, I, there was a gentleman on a regrowth.com forum. So that used, used to be a huge hair loss forum. And he was saying, hey, this story about DHD and genetics is wrong. There are other hormones involved in like estrogen and prolactin and things. And I was like, just inherently, for some reason, I have no idea why, that, it kind of made sense. And so long story short, I was thinking about those hormones for a long time and then enter Ray Pete. And I think he was the first person to kind of paint this picture of why those hormones increase, why they decrease and, and why they just uh, generally, I think, increase in, during the aging process. And I think if you want to get really like granular with it, um, and again, you probably could speak more intelligently about this than I could, but I think, I think it's like a precursor to heart disease. It's like a marker for heart disease. And I think that's probably at this very moment, June 7th, 2021, that's like the easiest way for me to think about it. 
um, uh, the arteries hardening over time, like starting with edema, then fibrosis, and then calcification, and that being like a general process that a lot of tissues are experiencing. And um, there's like a few good studies about the reduction of, of blood flow to the, the scalp that's probably happening in the brain too. Mm. And so, uh, and again, those hormones that we're, we've been talking about, the cortisol, the estrogen, the prolactin, the aldosterone, the serotonin, those are probably all facilitating the hardening of the arteries uh, heart disease in general, and um, and yeah, and getting the energy up would probably be a basic strategy to tr- to try to stop and possibly reverse those effects. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely um, there seems to be a lot of hallmarks that contribute to you know hair loss and things like that. Have you ever thought about designing like a like a like a crazy <laughs> mind map that links all of these things together? Or <laughs> Dude, many many times I'll have ideas like that. And then I'll start like uh, <laughs> like putting them together, and I'll be like, "Oh, I have two calls in fifteen minutes." <laughs> and like, and then I'll and then I'll just stop doing it. Like, I was just talking to somebody, and they're like, "Do you think your creative process is kind of like dimmed during like this whole thing that we're all going through right now?" And I, you know, I have to say yes. Like, it, it's really put kind of put me in survival mode of mm-hmm. thinking about the future rather than thinking things are going to be taken care of. You know, I'm. I'm thinking, oh man, what if this happens or what if that happens and you can't eat in three months or something? Like that that's where my mind is at right now. And so um, I was actually, not long ago, I was working on, because I, I, I've been saying for a long time I was going to write a, a sequel to that, that th- 2012-13 book and, and really put all of it together. And man, I lost a lot of energy for, for, for putting that together. And so what if, I, I think I put more time into just doing live streams and th- things at the moment. Cause those are very fun and enjoyable to do. And yeah. to be honest, like putting together uh, that graphic sounds fun that you're talking about, but putting together a book or something sounds really difficult. Cause I'm a terrible writer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, one thing, one thing that came to my mind with the whole um, hair loss thing is like, if it's not necessary for survival, like what's the, the function, the function of, of hair. Yeah, that's a great question. So this is not my idea. Ray first said it. He he thought it might be insulation for the brain. Right. And that idea, if you f- first hear it, maybe it sounds crazy or something. But when he said that, my my inclination is always to go through like the vast literature collection I have. You know, I haven't read every single paper. I have like eight thousand notes or something. I haven't read all those papers. But I'll go in my Evernote and I'll search for like insulation or warmth or hair or whatever. And I did uncover a few articles. Uh, one was like a really long time ago saying that basic thing that like everybody knew. I forgot what year it was. It was like in the 20s or something. Everybody knew that hair was insulation for the brain or whatever. And so that's a very compelling idea to me, you know, because the, the brain is such a metabolically vigorous, it's the most me- metabolically vigorous organ. Mm. And so is it crazy to think that hair is like an extension of this metabolically vigorous organ that can be greatly harmed when the temperature decreases? Like, I think that's completely reasonable. And there was one paper, I forget the name of it, but it was by Paus, P-A-U-S, and he said as much like that the hair was insulation and that it had, um, it gets really like that uh, deviations in the temperature of, of the hair follicles could change their structure and the, the morphogenesis of the actual structure of the hair follicle to change to, in order to retain heat and stuff. And so, it, so that, that area to me is like completely unexplored, just like the general phenomena of baldness. And so, what we're talking about here is um, really just. Uh, I think I think a lot of people think this stuff is nuts because they'll go they'll go try to find all the things we're talking about in the literature. And those papers do exist about prolactin, estrogen, aldosterone, and hypertension, arterial stiffness, heart disease. But I think it's really just been touched. Like I, I think so much more research needs to happen in this territory. Mm, yeah, for sure. So with um, I'd love to talk about calcium because um. Yeah. You know, you've, you've, you've written some good articles talking about, um, you know, debunking calcification and specifically let's look at, you know, why increasing calcium intake does not equal more calcification. Yeah. In uh, one of Ray's articles, I think it's called like calcium hypertension and some other things. He quotes Adele Davis and she's like an old school nutrition person. And she says something like, it's extremely important to remember that when you have a diet deficient in calcium, that makes cal- uh, 
uh, soft tissue calcification even worse. <laughs> and so I guess that's really the basic way to look at it. And Ray quotes another guy named David McCarran, who did a lot of research along these lines as well. But anyways, uh, long story short, I think when you stop eating calcium, you have a system in your body that's dictated by the parathyroid glands that are like four glands on the back of your thyroid, I think. And those hormones, I mean, those glands, which is like the only gland we have a quadruple redundancy of, produce parathyroid hormone. And parathyroid hormone shocks the bones to release calcium. And so, so if you just don't, you know how sometimes vegans will say there's never been a, a documented case of calcium deficiency or something? That, that's because it's so essential to your well-being that your body will break down your bones in order to liberate it. Yeah. And so the parathyroid hormone, and I think in conjunction with prolactin, they have like a tight relationship that both modify calcium metabolism. Those break down your bones to liberate calcium into the blood. That, and I think that pushes too much calcium into the cell and that can cause this kind of like hyper uh, excitotoxicity in, in the cell, which is not, it's like the opposite of its relaxed, ready state. And anyways, so eating dietary calcium suppresses parathyroid hormone and prolactin and other hormones. And that is just one way, I think, to improve a health situation. Mm. And, and I was as surprised as anybody because I thought calcium was like the most worthless nutrient ever during that whole dietary phase that I told you about. Like I never thought calcium, in fact, I, in carnivore, I ate like a phosphorus heavy diet for two years without, a, I mean, very little calcium during that whole time. There was a period of time when, um, you know, everyone was talking about magnesium and like <laughs> smashing heaps of magnesium supplements. <laughs> My dad's a pharmacist, so like I'd access <laughs> any sort of magnesium supplement I wanted. And then I also went off dairy at the same time and like, hang on a sec where am I getting my calcium? Because like I said, <laughs> you know, a little bit of broccoli here and there, but I wasn't having eggshells or anything. Um, and so I was like, hmm, what would happen if I reintroduced calcium? Like a, it was like an algae. Have you seen the, the sea-based uh, calcium powder? No, no. Mm-mm. It's like a specific um, coral calcium. Mm-hmm. And I just re- reintroduced that and, and, I, and I immediately noticed this like, you'd think excitatory effects, but I got a calming effect. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> That's funny that you say that. That's what they're always saying. It's like excitotoxic, but I think they're confused because yeah. it's the parathyroid hormone liberating the calcium from the bone that causes the excitotoxic. So again, this is kind of basic, but it's confused like all the time. In fact, it's probably really Ray is like one of the only proponents of even talking about this idea, you know? Um, that we have a similar experience. Like, um, I, I kind of skipped over it, but long story short, I was, I was, even when I got into race stuff, I was still having lots of random health problems and I did have high prolactin and which really interfered with the libido. Mm-hmm. And I remember meeting a new girl. This was a long time ago. So like dating apps and stuff didn't exist. And so I met a new girl and I was like, oh man, you can't screw this up. And anyways, I, I was like, my libido is going to be like a really big problem. I'm positive for the relationship. Anyways, long story short, I supplemented eggshell calcium and like three of my major life problems went away within like a few days <laughs> because of calcium supplementation. And that was shocking to me yeah. because again, I thought it was worthless. I wasn't really sure if it was right. He was compelling, of course, but I had never really experienced like kind of the beneficial effects of anything he was talking about. And supplementing calcium was really one of those first like aha moments. And then of course, transitioning to milk and cheese, which I ate a ton of when I was a kid and then just completely stopped when I uh, got all this super intelligent diet information in my brain, which was really set my health down the tubes. <laughs> same, same here, man. There was a period of time when I was like, when I was younger playing soccer, I'd always come back after training and I'd have like this full cream milk after training. And I always used to feel so good like that night or the, the, the next morning. And then I went through a period of like, I think it was like a three to four year period as I was, um, studying my naturopathy degree, I, I cut out all dairy and I'm like, why am I cutting this out? And then I use like BPC-157 to like heal yeah, the gut yeah. and all these, I, I fully healed my own gut and I was like, I brought them back in. I was able to tolerate dairy again. I'm like, oh my God, this, I remember how good, good milk tastes, you know? I, I mean, that was the, the, I remember being at the Ancestral Health Symposium in 2011 and there was a guy, I think his name was Pedro Bastos, and his whole presentation was just how milk was one of the worst foods you could possibly eat. And so it was milk, gluten, and sugar. Like those, and I think they specified maybe seed oils or whatever, but those were like the worst foods you could possibly eat. And so 
since I found Ray to be so compelling and he was talking in kind of this like milk is such a safe food type of way. I was just like extremely compelled by that. And, and you're right. Like what you just said, I, I, I really liked drinking milk, but I had just stopped, not done it for so long. And so, um, yeah, man, it would be hard, hard to believe life without cheese and milk at the moment. It'd be very difficult. <laughs> yeah. What about like, cause people might see some of Ray Pete's work and see that he encourages the use of, you know, he's, he's encouraging carbohydrate intake and sometimes even very large amounts. So do you want to talk about, I guess, you know, what is, what's the premise there? Like, is it all about speeding up metabolism or? My kind of simple understanding of it is I think when the blood sugar gets too low, that's like the kickoff to the stress response and, a, and adrenaline uh, being a short-term stress hormone and then cortisol being the long-term. And of course, a bunch of things happen in between then. I think the intestine becomes very permeable, starts like le- absorbing endotoxin into the blood. Uh, and so when I first heard that, I was like, ah, okay, that's why he's talking about uh, carbohydrate because you don't want your blood sugar to get too low. You want your liver glycogen, which is like storing sugar in between meals to be topped up. And you don't want to be susceptible to that adrenaline and cortisol. And, th- and again, that made sense to me because like when, when I worked at Apple retail, people used to like yell in my face when their computer is broken and you'd get like an adrenaline response when they'd be yelling at you. And I, I, I would probably experience that way more often than a normal person would uh, just because I was probably hypothyroid for a very long time. And so when he was talking about those things, I was like, this, this definitely is starting to make a little bit more sense. Mm-hmm. I think there's way more extravagant arguments for carbohydrate, but that keeping the blood sugar up, um, being this like optimal fuel for carbon dioxide, which we haven't really talked about, but that being this reciprocal process of allowing cells to consume oxygen and sugar and make more carbon dioxide. Like people say it's the waste product of cellular respiration. And I think in this whole bioenergetic or stress or thyroid or repeat approach, it's, it's like the prize of respiration. Like that's the thing that you want. And so, um, yeah, well, uh, so, so anyways, that it, and so the carbohydrate dampening those systems the hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenals, and to a, another extent, the intestine mm. that are act, chronically being activated throughout a person's lifetime, and, and carbohydrate being this like simple answer to dampening the stress response that w- worsen the quality of life. Yeah, and what I like about what Ray talks about is supporting the body with the you know the vitamins and, and minerals and nutrients as well. Like because there was a you know there's a period of time when I saw people talking about high dose vitamin B one. <laughs> you know, and I start, I personally started playing around. I started experimenting with, you know, between 400 to 800 milligrams of just thiamine HCL. And I was like, holy moly, like my mental clarity is, is improved so much. Like I felt like I was able to focus. My verbal fluency was improved. It was phenomenal. Um, and so that's what I like about Ray P. He encourages, you know, things that's going to, you know, improve the body's ability to tolerate the carbohydrates as well. A hundred percent. Yeah, no, that's, um, that like energy focus, you know, like I think the B1 is part of that pyruvate dehydrogenase complex or whatever that's like critical for energy production. And it probably does a bunch of other stuff that I don't, uh, but like, it's, it's like that grounding in something that's real. You know what I mean? And, and rather than like, oh, let's do what our ancestors did. It's like, what, like how, how nonspecific does that, how fast does that become completely unuseful? You know what I mean? And similarly, like how fast is just not eating? Say you have a serious disease or something and, and you're going vegan because you don't want to eat animals or something. It's just like totally bizarre. And so, um, I mean, I've said this before, but I think Ray is like a hundred years ahead of everybody. And, and, and I just think his paradigm, his bioenergetic view is, is so helpful in, in developing a toolbox of foods and supplements or whatever to, to make life better and to... Uh, to mitigate symptoms of a person is experiencing a bad ones. Yeah. Um, a quick little hack for those listening in. Um, one, one particular, you know, dietary intervention that I've kept with me till this day is the raw carrot salad. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> You can't go wrong. Like you know, apple cider vinegar, coconut oil. <laughs> You're good. <laughs> it's, it did that, that thing has really like, taken Twitter by storm. It's like very popular on Twitter for like all these different groups of people. Like the one thing they have in common is that they're using this carrot salad. And so, I mean, it's not surprising, right? It's like uh, digestive stuff is so common 
leaning towards constipation or diarrhea or a mixture of those or having bloating after meals, et cetera. And so, um, again, this is all kind of goes into what you said about B1. It's like, try these little things that aren't massively confusing or anything. Try to do baby steps to, tr- to feeling better. And, and I think the carrot salad is about the most uh, brainless thing a person could engage in every day to have pay big dividends. Like that could majorly improve. I, I mean, I know for a fact, like I get email about the carrot salad that it cures diver, uh, diverticulitis, how you said, like, like serious inflammatory bowel problems. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think I posted about it today, like using uh, olive oil instead of coconut oil. And the olive oil, I think it has an even better effect than the coconut oil. And mm. so I, I used to think it was not that important, but now I'm pretty religious about it. I'll do it every, every single day. <laughs> yeah. And um, there's one other principle that, that Ray stresses, the, the whole endotoxin side of things is um and i see georgie talking about how lps is linked to so many different diseases so um what's you know what's ray's stance there and like you know what's your stance on like the whole endotoxin side of things yeah so i i so uh gram negative bacteria in like that are natural produce endotoxin in the large intestine and i think when the there's a paper I have. It's called like um, hypothyroidism in association with small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And so it's a kind of known that if a person's been hypothyroid for a long time, they'll tend to develop this very common type of bacterial overgrowth in their small intestine. So apparently the small intestine is supposed to be completely sterile. It's not supposed to have any bacteria in it. And so I think at that point, like if a person has been experiencing chronic stress for a long time, they have a low pulse and temperature, they're noticing maybe, an, uh, maybe tending towards diarrhea more or having really bad gas. Uh, that would be probably an endotoxin problem. You know, their intestine, intestine is likely leaky and it's absorbed, endotoxin being absorbed in the blood. And then it's putting, I think, tremendous pressure on your liver to get rid of it. And then, uh, and the liver is like the, the chemist of the body. And so I, I think you're uh, really in a bad situation when that starts happening. And I'm fairly certain I have a paper, but they're like predicting who's going to die in the hospital based on their level of endotoxin. So, Oh. It's, I guess it's like one of these primary factors in stress and I haven't really talked about it yet, but I think it's one of those things that can activate that HPA or the hypothalamus pituitary, pituitary and adrenals. And um, like Georgie was saying, there's really nothing uh, bad that it doesn't do. Like, I think it's this like huge complication in the aging process and stress and inflammation that it would probably serve the person to try to take care of. You can't get rid of it. It's always going to be there. But things like the carrot salad, getting the thyroid function up, the, or the mushrooms or, or, or whatever, there's like a bunch of different strategies. And also e- eating an easy to digest diet that doesn't feed the bacteria in the gut. Those are probably all uh, strategies to, again, doing all those things we're talking about, improving the quality of life, just improving sleep. You know, I think a, a lot of sleep problems are caused from bad digestion. And so that, I think that's a huge one. Yeah, for sure. So I'm curious to know, Danny, with some of the, um, you know, some of the experiments that you've run on yourself, like any, like what would you say has been like the most potent anti-stress, either hormone <laughs> or anti-stress molecule? Man, you know what it is? It's keeping things as simple as possible. <laughs> that, that's my, that's my substance that I use. Um, I, I, I'm kind of joking, but I'm kind of serious. It's like keeping, th- like, so for example, like in practice, for me, that actually means not eating lots of supplements. And so like on a day-to-day basis, I'll usually take uh, aspirin, I'll take thyroid, and I'll usually supplement with vitamins D and K. And so I, I can't lift my leg up because it will bump my microphone, but I actually have that applied to my leg right now on my skin. And, and, and so for, for me, I like had pretty sensitive digestion most of my life. And so not eating lots of supplements actually, I think greatly in- increases my digestive prowess and just alleviates potential complications. Mm. And so, and I take that basic view with my food too. Like I try not to, I, of course I'm eating to satisfaction and appetite, but I'm not trying to make things like mega complex because if you do run into a problem and that's likely because our environment is always changing, you know, from day to day, I think it just makes it super simple to navigate that problem without being like, okay, was it the P.F. Chang's that I ate two days ago that's like going through my digestive system right now. Uh, and, and maybe the other thing that, again, is not answering your question is the eat, cooking your own food. 
And I, and I think, especially for a person maybe with a long-term chronic health problem, this is like a non-really negotiable thing. Like if, I think if you want to make progress, you really got to cook your own food and eating out every day is probably just a recipe for disaster because the food in most restaurants is such low quality. Mm-hmm. Um, but to actually answer your question, I think vitamin D I see as like this very powerful um, anti-stress substance. Of course, thyroid. Are you taking that topically or orally? Yeah, yeah, just on my skin. So I'll, I'll, yeah. I did an old podcast with Ray in 2016. And the piece of wisdom he provided was like, when you use it topically, you got to use about 10 times the amount. And so if I want 4,000 UI, I'll put on 40,000 on my skin. Wow. Okay. And you also mentioned um, aspirin as well. Do you want to share your rationale there? Yeah, yeah. So that one's a hard pill to, no pun intended, <laughs> to swallow for a lot of people. And it was actually one of the absolute last things I integrated that Ray talked about very favorably. I was like, he's, he's got to be wrong about this. Um, something we didn't really get into, but like a hallmark of stress is the liberation of fatty acids into the blood. And that will be debated by low-carb and carnivore people. But I, I, th- I think it's fairly well established, you know, that that is true. Um, there's a person named Fran and then a paper by a guy named Wolf. But they're both saying, and again, there's more papers on that, but they're saying the uh, liberation of fatty acids is like this fundamental response to stress. And it's probably to slow down the system to, get, uh, to again, go long, uh, less, uh, <laughs> longer on less, you know, to, to make sure you don't burn up your tissues. It's not like advantageous to have extremely high thyroid function under stress because you just waste your tissues, you know? Mm. Um, so anyways, aspirin, among many other things, opposes that process. And so I think it helps your cells use oxygen and glucose uh, and opposes the, the accumulation of the polyunsaturated fats, that lipid peroxidation process that harms mitochondria. It, lo- it lowers the prostaglandins and a particular prostaglandin, prostaglandin E2, is, uh, activates aromatase, converting testosterone into estrogen. Um, it, I, I mean, it's like a Swiss army knife. It just does, it increases barrier function, like, so it opposes endotoxin, like we were talking about earlier. It's just a very useful substance that can, then again, I, like when I, I went to Thailand last year, I brought a huge bottle of aspirin just because I was like, I have no idea what I'm going to run into here. Like, and I, I was just, I felt good having that huge, and it actually aspirin wasn't even available where I was. And so it was very good that it had, I had it. But anyways, it's like the, it's like an antidote to some of the very toxic aspects of, of what we've been growing up eating and the culture and the stress and things like an anti-stress substance so, but it also has like an indirect pro-thyroid property. Is that is that right? I, I think I think by uh, like opposing that aromatase, uh, lowering the or acting on that cyclooxygenase two, which is like making the prostaglandins. Um, it does a bunch of other things we didn't talk about. Like the part of the bad thing about the calcium going into cell, I think, is it turns on nitric oxide and it, oh. it opposes that. Like it it just does so many. Again, there's so many things that are happening in the stress response. And aspirin is like, oh, boom, boom, boom. And like just decreasing a lot of those. And so um, the only caveat, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but it's like, to, I think it's good to dissolve the aspirin. So taking the tablet, putting it in hot water and putting a little baking soda in it. And a lot of those pills uh, have a lot of toxic things in them, like titanium dioxide and stuff. And so I think if, you're, if a person hears this and they're interested, you probably just want to find an aspirin that's pure or only with starch or something. Mm. Yeah, let's um, because you mentioned nitric oxide, and I sort of just completely forgot about that. Because <laughs> a, a lot of my listeners will, you know, um, talk about. Well, th- we've spoken about the benefits of raising nitric oxide in, in the athletic performance perspective, but let's talk about, you know, some of the damaging effects of nitric oxide. So that uh, that there's a paper. It's called uh, by a guy named McCann. It's called the nitric oxide theory of aging, and in that paper. He goes through just a litany of things that really fit into the topics that we're talking about right now. And so I think he, even in that paper, he says the age of any tissue is really uh, correlates well with the amount of nitric oxide it's producing. So again, this is a little over my head, but like I think carbon dioxide is the healthy natural vasodilator. And I think when, uh, for example, estrogen is one of the things that I think powerfully increases nitric oxide. So I think it's like this... Um, emergency vasodilator that again, as, as we accumulate polyunsaturated fat, as we accumulate stress over a lifetime, these things that were adaptive previously become pathological. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, I think there's one paper that says um, the accum- accumulation of linoleic acid uh, 
which is formed into arachidonic acid by the liver in the body. Like it, was it, I can't remember the exact fat. Anyways, a polyunsaturated fat turned nitric oxide from this helpful, supportive thing during moments of stress into a pathological agent during, during aging. And so the only other thing I didn't say, I think it deactivates the mitochondria. And so uh, we've talked a lot about mitochondrial respiration that being very essential for the, the integrity of any tissue. And I think that this vasodilation, dilative effect that nitric oxide has comes at a great expense by turning off mitochondria. So I realize that's like another thing that is like very at odds with like a lot of people in the health world. But um, again, that paper, McCann's Nitric Oxide Theory of Aging, I think that's an excellent paper on the subject. Of course, Ray's work. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure to link those um, in the show notes for those <laughs> listening in. Um, you know, as you're talking, Danny, all I can see now is like, if we have different headings, like, you know, endotoxin, then we've got um, prostaglandins, cortisol, estrogen, pro- prolactin, like, we haven't even spoken about progesterone. We haven't even <laughs> going all day because, you know, progesterone is considered a, a protective hormone from, you know, in Ray's opinion, right? Yeah. Thanks for mentioning that. Like totally glazed through them. So, so all the bad things we've been talking about, the hormones, I think there are, so thyroid is part of the reason thyroid is good is it turns over cholesterol into pregnenolone, progesterone, DHEA. And in short, these are, are opposing all of the negative effects of the cortisol, aldosterone, prolactin, estrogen, et cetera. And so, um, so yeah, that's when things get really bad. Your thyroid function lowers, you decrease the formation of these protective steroids. They call them like the youth-associated steroids. And then all you have is these high stress hormones that are just tearing you down. And so, um, for example, DHEA, I think when people, like healthy people go parachute, their cortisol goes really high, but so does their DHEA to kind of like buffer the effects of cortisol. And so if you, if you have low thyroid, you're also going to produce a lot less DHEA. So all you're going to have, if that parachuting person did that, they just have high cortisol, which is devastating to your structure and your brain and your heart and everything else. And, you, and like nobody thinks, maybe zero carb people think it's good to have high cortisol, but like really nobody does. <laughs> well, um, some people can, I mean, I've seen, um, there's some pretty interesting articles on like how um, using hydrocortisone and um, uh, like pregnis- uh, uh, prednisolone and things like that, people can get almost manic, right? Yeah, that's the crazy part. And so I skipped over this part of my story, but like uh, I, I was convinced I had adrenal fatigue. I, I didn't really understand the thyroid at all. I mean, still don't understand it, but I didn't understand it at all during that time. And there was a book or do you remember that website, Stop the Thyroid Madness? Did you ever go on there? Oh, I think I've ever heard it. It doesn't matter. It's like a very popular thyroid website, but they were always talking about like, if you didn't respond to thyroid, you needed to increase your cortisol levels. Like like it was a popular thing to think that you didn't produce cortisol. Anyways, long story short, I actually like kind of forced a doctor's hand into uh, prescribing me Cortef, which is like synthetic hydrocortisone. And uh, I felt pretty bad. (laughs) So so yeah, that is... uh, I don't hear a lot about it these days, but it's a very risky thing to do. But on the flip end, it could make a person feel temporarily better because yeah. I think part of the reason taking cortisol is that you're turning your tissues into um, sugar. And so the, the person experiencing low blood sugar or hypoglycemia, or if they have uh, high blood sugar and the free fatty acids are blocking the use of sugar, like they might feel significantly better using the cortisol. But again, it's like at a great expense of tearing down your tissue. Mm. Danny, do you want to sort of talk about, um, so like this morning temperature, you would say is extremely um, indicative of somebody's metabolic health. Can you give my audience an understanding around how they should be taking or assessing their temperature? Yeah, so don't trust me. Get Broda Barnes's book, Hypothyroidism, The Unsuspected Illness. Like if any of this resonates at all, grab that book. It's only like $12, $12 $13 and peruse it. And in that book, he says anything under 97.8 Fahrenheit, which is I think 36.6 Celsius, is uh, not, that's indicative of hypothyroidism, he thought. And so Ray adds and almost, I mean, I have a sample size that already resonates with a lot of the things we're talking about, but you see 95s, uh, 96s, like super low temperatures. It's like, seems like the norm. And uh, and then the thing, the spice that Ray adds to that is that he thinks 
not he thinks, there are papers that talk about circadian rhythm of thyroid function being the highest in the afternoon, a little bit lower in the morning and a little bit lower in the evening. And so he, he suggests that the 98.6 is the most critical in the afternoon when the circadian rhythm of the thyroid is the, the highest. And so if you measure your, uh, uh, I didn't get to it yet, but pulse and temperature in the morning and then in the afternoon, and then you just on a one minute timer count, count the pulse, I, I think doing that for a few days and then getting the average is really an accurate way to assess the thyroid function. Like if you, if you tell that to a medical doctor, they might laugh in your face. But I, I think it's, it's almost more accurate than a lot of blood tests because, as you know, uh, interpreting blood tests, you could give blood tests to 10 different doctors and they'd all tell you probably different things about them. It's like a, there's an art to interpreting blood tests with the symptoms a person experiencing. And I have extremely low confidence in the ability of many physicians to like, interpret blood tests because I, not only in my own experience of doctors like egregiously kind of not synthesizing what was on the paper, but um, I've seen it just many, many times and it's disheartening to say the least. Yeah. Interesting. So, um, and I've heard Ray P talk about, you know, he's, he's very pro um, caffeine or coffee. Um, I mean, I, maybe that statement's incorrect. You correct me if I'm wrong, but <laughs> my stance personally, I'm, I mean, I'm someone who, you know, I, I respond well to coffee. Like I feel really good, energetic, but unfortunately, like, if I don't have the next day, then I feel like my baseline, you know, I'm, I'm way below baseline. Like, are you similar in that regard? Yeah, I actually, so again, I don't want to tell you a 25 minute story, but the coffee thing was like a no-go for me. So one, I never really enjoyed coffee my entire life. And then when I tried using it, I drank like half a cup of coffee in the morning and then it would keep me up to like 3 or 4 a.m. So it had this like super prolonged effect that like ruined my sleep. And so this was actually something Georgie clarified for me. So when we were doing those, uh, Georgie is my like co-host partner uh, in, the, in these live streams. But anyways, we used to do an old podcast in 2015 and he mentioned in like Bulgaria or something or Europe somewhere that they had a test for caffeine clearance for liver health. And then the people were with like uh, mild or severe liver disease, the caffeine cleared very slowly through the liver. Oh. And I was like, aha, that actually kind of makes sense because I'm so ridiculously sensitive to caffeine. And also I know people that are in good health that can drink coffee before bed and nothing bad happens to them. So I was like, clearly there's something super wrong with me. And anyways, long story short, when I started supplementing thyroid hormone, which Broda Barnes has another book called, uh, that's all about liver function, saying that the thyroid and liver have this intimate connection. Uh, anyways, long story short, I, I was able to tolerate caffeine for like the first time in my life when I started taking thyroid. And so um, like I have coffee right here. It's, it's nine o'clock. I'm sure I'll be fine when I go to bed tonight. Oh. Yeah. Um, and what about like uh, using coffee or caffeine in a in a glycogen depleted state what's the yeah so so that's the thing you got to be careful with i think it could the risk of the caffeine could always be mitigated by consuming coffee with a food or adding like heavy cream to it and sugar or whatever i think i think the worst thing to do is like the blood sugar i think because of that dawn phenomena like the high cortisol in the morning is the most sensitive in the morning like that's i think that's peak stress for a lot of people and so drinking a black cup of coffee in the morning is probably like one of the worst things a person could probably do because it's going to lower the blood sugar even like, you know, how uh, low carb people are like, oh, it increases ketone bodies. Like that's, that's actually like the opposite of what the bioenergetic uh, kind of, I don't know for that. That's like the, the opposite. I, I think of what that's like promoting stress. And so slowing the absorption down with cream and sugar or uh, and like a pretty large degree of like milk and cream to sugar uh, to, to coffee or a meal and taking it afterwards uh, or getting your thyroid checked and may maybe you have a pseudo liver problem from hypothyroidism. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So Danny, maybe do you want to, what, what I'm curious to know, like what's next for you? Like what areas of research <laughs> are you excited to see more of? <laughs> what, what's next for me is farming. And so that's the, the, that's the next thing. I, I, I'm in frequent contact with a couple here that wants to move south and start a farm. And so uh, it's, it's still a little up in the air, but I think that's next is, is learning about something I really have no idea about and, and getting deep into that. But um, on the health front, to, to be honest with you, I'm not like super, all this stuff is endlessly fascinating, but you, I'm sure yourself, you go through phases of being like hyper interested in different subjects. And I think, I think that, that uh, has kind of been funneled into live streams. 
And so I'm talking to Georgian Friday and all of that will come out and all my interest will come out into that. Then we'll do it the next week. And so besides ta- like talking to people, uh, doing an odd interview here and there, um, there's nothing, I'll, I'll get on little kicks like, um, how does prolactin really work? Like what don't I know about it or something? Or somebody will send me something that will start a, a like a, a rabbit trail into somewhere that I've never been before. But it's, it's a little bit rarer these days uh, just because I'm, I think I'm doing so much more than I used to. Yeah. Yeah. And you're doing a, like for those listening in, um, Danny, where can they find your live streams and, and all of your, all of your content? At the moment, the pro- telegram is probably the best place. It's t.me slash Danny Roddy, or you could go on YouTube for as long as it's around at youtube.com slash Danny Roddy. And you can find the live streams there, but the telegram would probably be the best to keep up to date about all, all the things. Amazing. Well, um, yeah, we'll be sure to link them in the, in the show notes for those listening in. Um, but Danny, I'm sure we could probably talk for, you know, many more hours. Very long time. <laughs> and uh, like even some of those topics, I'm like, oh, geez, I would love to go down a rabbit hole here. But um, just say, you know, I'm cautious of my audience as well. Like what do they want to <laughs> learn? But yeah, man, like thanks so much for coming on the show. It's just been a pleasure chatting with you like for the first time it's total total pleasure uh if you ever want to do it again let me know anytime but uh and thank you for doing the work you know i I said off air that i i have massive respect for anybody that's kind of putting themselves out there creating content i think that's a very hard thing to do and so i think you're doing uh god's work and so kudos to you as well for just being uh, an advocate of taking your health in your own hands and figuring things out That's it. Awesome. Well, um, yeah, Danny, thanks for coming on the show, man. (laughs) Pleasure. Thank you, Lucas. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology. This has been a No Filter Media production. Say what you want. 